Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. Hi, all you movie fans out there. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. Of course, you don't have to be a movie addict to visit here, but if you are one, it's definitely the place for you. We have a great show for you today, folks. Our guest is the award-winning filmmaker Rolf Konefsky, who has agreed to talk with us about his terrific movie, One in the Gun, which is being released on DVD next Tuesday. Now, I've been trying to book Rolf for a long time, so I'm very excited that he could be here today. He's written and directed 15 feature films, including Pretty Cool, Dead Scared, and There's Nothing Out There. Rolf earned a top screenplay award at the L.A. Shriekfest competition and was the subject of a featured cover story for Hollywood Scriptwriter magazine. His features have won multiple awards at various prestigious film festivals, and it's my pleasure to bring him on now. Welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters, Rolf. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's so great to have you on our show, and we have lots of questions for you, but first I want to remind listeners that our producer, Nikki Starr, has opened the chat room, so if you would like to participate don't hesitate to sign up, and we really appreciate your uh, participation. Now, um, Rolf, there's a, a little surprise for you today uh, here uh, that we may have given away a little bit before the show, but we also have with us one of the producers of the film, Esther Goodstein. Esther, uh, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters. Well, thank you very much, Betty Jo, and thanks for having me. Well, it's, I'm just delighted that you could come on the show. Now, um, would you? I understand that you're the one that that got Rolf involved in One in the Gun. Is that correct? Well, yes, actually, that is correct. Uh, right at the beginning, uh, Stephen Mann, who is the lead actor in the film, and his partner Michelle Schernen von Schudenis, came to me and talked about us making a film together. And I asked, they had an idea, and I asked if, you had a, if they had a script, and they said, well, not really. I said, great. <laughs> Which well, not, was you said great when they said not really. <laughs> exactly. I said, that's actually wonderful, because with a script, it might be hard for me to approach my partner, Rolf, but without one, the writer-director in him would click right in. <laughs> and uh, it was a really amazing experience, because we got to start from scratch knowing certain things that you wouldn't ordinarily know when you start writing a movie. Oh, and so actually, uh, Rolf, then what you did was you took uh, you took a screenplay that was already written, and then you, you sort of redid it. Is that correct? No, no. What, what uh, Steve, uh, we, we, when we had the meeting, uh, Steve and Michelle and Astra came over, 
and they told me that they'd like to do a film noir kind of movie. Um, Steve was a big fan of an old uh, Mickey Rooney film called Quicksand, and he wanted mm-hmm. to do something a little bit like that, but um, he had ideas, but no real, you know, he had like a one-page um, concept of uh, I, concepts and ideas that he he wanted to address. And I read that, and I watched the movie, and I basically came up with something completely different, <laughs> and um, and uh, wrote a, a treatment, a three or four page treatment for Steve, and he read that, thought it was great, um, and hired me to write the screenplay from there. So it was a, a totally original script that I wrote and uh, then directed. Well, you did a terrific job, uh, Rolf. I, I thought it was a fascinating movie, and I I like the sort of bizarre David Lynchian undertones and I like the way you made the plot so complicated and you had mysterious characters and and sometimes disturbing surprises uh, you know I thought I when I was watching that film every time I thought I had things figured out something happened to make me think again and I just love it when that <laughs> when that happens well, that, that the was definitely that, the idea <laughs> oh um, my gosh and I, I just I I just thought that it uh that it was um you know so entertaining and just held my interest from beginning to end so you can see that I'm I'm very very hooked on one in the gun and so pleased that it's coming at, finally coming out on DVD uh, next uh, Tuesday but what was the biggest challenge you faced while you while you filmed this movie Well basically I had um one of the biggest ones was just ta- tackling the, the genre of film noir. I had never worked in that before, really. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan, and uh, you love, of course, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, probably the most famous film noir movie. But I'd done you know, horror films and comedy and comedy horror and uh, thrillers, but never in the noir thing. So uh, approaching the, the script and the movie, I, I, w- I wanted to – make sure that I didn't uh, spoof it or, or satirize it because um, I, I did respect the genre a lot and I've done a lot of parodies in the past. But I watching, I spent two weeks watching a lot of movies. A friend of mine, uh, filmmaker Courtney Joyner, has a big collection and I basically borrowed like two dozen film noirs and watched them and, and got the feel of it all and said, okay, now how can we contemporize it? Um, kind of what Body Heat had done with Double Indemnity, but again, this has been a while since Body Heat. Um, to bring it more into uh, today and uh, be careful not to uh, poke fun at it. So that's why I kind of did away with the voiceover, the traditional VO of the the main character talking in the beginning, and that comes in a little bit later in the movie to kind of bring people into uh, a little bit more of a contemporary feel with dialogue that's a little traditional and uh, has a bit of a flair of of the past. So it's it's a mixture right from the beginning of something old and something new and that continues within the second half of the movie when we get more into where film noir with David Lynch, like Blue Velvet, transitioned into a little more extreme and surreal uh, uh, story points uh, to make the movie. Oh, I, I see what you mean. And, um, you know, uh, we had a film historian, Charles uh, Pappas, uh, on our show uh, quite a while ago, but he's a film historian who wrote a book called It's a Bitter Little World, The Smartest, Toughest, Nastiest Quotes from Film Noir. And he's, he had a statement in that book that that I thought uh, really explained it. He, he calls these types of, of movies cynical movies about sex, violence, and money 
featuring losers who seek the very thing that gets them killed. <laughs> we'll probably right. be, and he says these films were, will probably be around for a long time because as long as life disappoints, men and women betray each other, and what we need gets us killed, there will always be film noir. So uh, do you kind of agree with that point of view? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, someone else described the film once was, uh, I think of the script when they read it, they said, uh, nobody gets what they want, but everyone gets what they deserve. <laughs> and I thought that's a great way to, to describe uh, one in the gun. <laughs> I, I think so. And um, you said you didn't want to poke fun, but um, you – oh, that – and we interviewed someone else uh, that uh, had something to say about you and about one in the gun. We talked with Stephen Bauer, who plays one of the characters in one in the gun. We talked with him – Right after the film was uh, released, I think it was just going into film festivals, and he just uh, was so happy that he had a chance to work with you. And he mentioned your dark sense of humor, and that was one of the things that he that he enjoyed. And I do think you have shown that dark sense of humor in this film. I mean, you say you're not poking fun, but, oh, but no, your the, humor. Absolutely. No, there's a there's a there's a good sense of humor to the movie, and and as I said with the Billy Wilder movies and, and his stuff and Alfred Hitchcock even. So Hitchcock has, was loaded with black humor, psycho, and I mean, every film he made was was funny in its own twisted way. So uh, to be honest to that, I, I definitely wanted that sense of humor. Um, another inspiration, because I, I, I branched off film noir because I do love movies in general, um, especially in the second half of the film. Everyone talks David Lynch, but the other thing that I think comes through, if you, if you really know it, is uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, classic After Hours. Which I love as a as a dark commentary of you know about New York City and and all the crazy women he meets in the set you know that movie is is definitely a part of an influence in what happens in One of the Gun. Yes, I, I see. Let me chime in here and just say, Rolf's sure. sense, hi, Rolf's sense of humor cannot be denied. <laughs> no matter how dark or twisted or messed up a you know a situation might be. He's always got a way to kind of just tweak it into something that'll kind of make you smile, no matter what. And that's true in life as well, which is one of the reasons why we're partners. Yes, and, <laughs> and I should, and I should point out that Esther is not only the producer, but she plays one of the twisted, dark characters in one of the guns. She's Belle, the um, the, the the woman who works in the uh, the diner and the lounge singer in the movie. That's right. Oh, yep. she did it! You did a great job, Esther. Thank so, have you Thank done have you done uh, other uh, acting besides this? Well, you know, I actually started as an actor and um, actor till you die. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I branched off into making movies, and I love, love, love what I do. But when the opportunity to act presents itself, it's always just a joy. Always a joy. I, I don't have the kind of life where I'm constantly struggling to be, you know, a movie star. That's not me. I'm much more a character kind of gal. So I make movies, and sometimes I, I'm, uh, well, this was the first one, actually, that I'm in. Of all the films that I've made to that point, I'd never uh, asked or wanted to or thought it was appropriate for me to do. And the only reason it happened this time is because, I was such a big part of the development process along with Rolf. And um, actually, funny enough, at one point during the development process of the film, everyone in the desert was going to be female. 
That only lasted a, about a day, maybe two days. <laughs> it was during that time, and knowing the locations already, again, this was a very strange way to put together a movie, but it was a wonderful experience, uh, where we knew which locations we were going to use, we knew who our lead actor was, and those things really helped dictate a lot of where the story went. And while we were at that phase where everyone in the desert might be female, I said, what if one of those characters was a lounge singer? We have that wonderful stage to use. And Rolf, having heard me sing at a friend's wedding, laughed and said, oh, who would want to play that role? And I said, you know, if it stays small enough, I do. But if it gets too big, not. I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you did. And. Uh, and while we're we're talking about you you actually doing a little a part in the movie, I wanted to uh, compliment you both on on the cast, the entire cast for this for this film. Um, my question is how you how did you how did you select the cast? But you've already Rolf answered a little bit, and and you too, Esther, especially about Stephen Mann because he uh, he was kind of the first one involved, right? With and, and so naturally, you wrote the wrote it actually. I wrote yes, it was written as as a vehicle for Stephen, and um, but he also wanted to have you know a great supporting cast around him, so uh, it was also to write you know a, a good ensemble piece where every role is important to the story. You know, he's the center, um, and the audience sort of sees the whole movie through his eyes, but. As things spiral out of control, you know everything around him gets weirder and weirder, and all those characters need to, to be uh, uh, really good. Um, when we started the script, it was actually uh, going to be a, a smaller film, and we were even going to do it non-fag, uh, low budget. But once the script got to where it was, and we started, you know, auditioning people, um, we started getting interest from a few uh, bigger people, and uh, Robert Davi. Uh, who plays oh. Vincent um, in the movie, uh, who was in, you know, he was the, the villain in James Bond's Living, uh, License to Kill and The Goonies and Die Hard, and uh, he loved the part of Vincent. Um, James Russo had a really great time playing uh, Jimmy, the, um, the the owner of the uh, motel, um, and he had been in everything from Fast Times at Richmond High to Beverly Hills Cop to uh, uh, Public Enemies and uh, <laughs> Donnie Brasco. Um, yep. So it was, uh, and then Stephen Bauer too, who just uh, who just thought it was a lot of fun, and and he got a kick out of doing it all. And then we found a a, a wonderful uh, femme fatale. You know, the, these movies you know hinge a lot on on who is who is the femme fatale. You know, uh, from Barbara Absolutely. Stanwyck, from Barbara Stanwyck to uh, amazing, Kathy, the gorgeous Catherine Randolph, Catherine Turner, yes. Um, oh. But Catherine Randolph came in and just uh, and and nailed it. And Esther has a funny casting story on that one, actually. Oh, tell, oh. please tell us. I- do um she is to to date and and probably for the rest of my life the only actress i have ever actually begged to audition for us <laughs> really she was, well good for you yes, one of one of the other producers miriam burke was um helping us out with casting because we we did our own casting mostly for this film we did have a little help from victoria burroughs um, as far as getting the script to the name actors, and she's a wonderful, wonderful woman to help us out like that, also uh, one of the producers. And uh, we were running the casting, and we were so overloaded with everything else in pre-production. Um, Miriam was helping. And when you use the casting sites that we were using, all of the online casting sites, mm-hmm. actors put themselves into multiple categories. They'll, they'll 
apply for multiple positions, multiple characters. And when uh-huh. we put her on the list, it was to call her in for the role of Cat. And when uh-huh. Miriam called her, she offered her an audition for the role of Lizzie. And if you remember Lizzie from the movie, it's a smaller part. She's a tough girl. She does, you know, nudity in her scene. And when Catherine read that, she thought, it's a smaller part, the nudity. It's not for me. It's not my kind of role. No, thank you. So when I called her myself to ask her to come in and audition for Cat, she said, I've already turned you guys down. (laughs) I'm like, what? Oh, what? Oh. I'm sorry. What do you mean? And she said, no, you, you know, you sent me the sides, and I declined, and thank you very much, and have a good day, and hopefully we'll work together another time. She was very polite, but no. And I said, well, that wasn't, wait a minute, which role? And she said, Lizzie. And I said, that's not the role we were considering you for. She said, yeah, it's not my kind of movie. I said, you haven't read the movie. I actually sent her the whole script, which I have never done for an actress who has yet to audition. I wanted her to see what this movie was instead of just those odd scenes. In the, you know how crazy it gets in the second half of the movie. And oh, those yeah. scenes were very disjointed when they're not part of the whole. And so I wanted her to see what this movie was and that we wanted her to play this fun. She called me back in three hours and she said, I'll come in and audition for you. I said, great. <laughs> but oh, I, I really had to bend over backwards to get Kat in the door. <laughs> Well, you you did a, a a great thing here, Esther, because this uh, this Catherine Randolph. I mean, she's about as seductive as film allows. I think. I agree. <laughs> she <Yeah>. really <laughs> was a great femme fatale. But I was I was impressed with uh, Stephen Mann as uh, Mickey Lewis. I thought that was a tough that was a tough role role to play. But he just. He just projects the right combination of toughness and innocence, and he and, and you can kind of see his a little bit of flair for comedy that's that's coming through there. And then Stephen Bauer, he really brought gravitas to the role of that rich uh, husband. And so I think every, you just did the right thing with with everybody that you put uh, that you put into the into the film. But of course, Mickey Lewis, the part played by Stephen Mann. That is the main character, and it was really intriguing to watch him go deeper and deeper into this film noir territory. And and I I just couldn't help wondering if he has any idea, this Mickey Lewis has any idea what danger he's in, (laughs) playing a struggling artist, and he becomes involved with the sexy Katrina, played by Catherine Randolph, who's married to a wealthy but abusive spouse, and that's Stephen Bauer. And, of course, everything... Everything that can straighten all of this out is probably illegal. <laughs> of course, uh, everything everything goes wrong, but in such an interesting, intriguing way. And I I just think you did uh, you did a great job with that. Did you use Rolf any special techniques to help these actors deliver such fine performances? Um. Well, I, I'm a I'm a big believer in rehearsals. I, I like pre-production very much, and uh, this this movie had to be worked out because there's the, the structure of the film is uh, flashbacks within flashbacks within flash forwards, and there's uh, there's an element of the memento uh, feel to it. Um, yes. Stephen, you know, and this and the trick with Steve's character is Mickey. Um, he's a very much a gray character. You don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy for a, a, quite a bit in the movie, and um, he had to keep that balance going as the film gets 
more and more psychological. We really, you know, you know, it's sort of one man's personal journey into hell with what's happening around him. Um, yeah. So we just uh, we we just rehearsed and worked on the things. We were were great that uh, we were able to go to some of the sets that were being built and and the producer we the, the main house we shot the first part of the movie in was the producer's house. So it was oh. written with I knew the house. I took pictures. So when I wrote the script, I knew what I needed. So when we get into the big first revelation uh, flashback se- section of the movie, um, I designed it all so we could do a very theatrical. Uh, flash forward and flash back with people appearing out windows in different scenes while we're telling the story. So uh, there's a very uh, stylized um, theatricality to the movie, which which I thought was mm-hmm. kind of neat and you don't see too often. Um, yeah. Besides that, we, yeah. we just uh, we worked on the characters and everyone knew who they were. It was it was when I talked to um, Robert Davi the first time, he had read the script and he said, you know, I have no questions. It's all there. He said, it's all in the script. Oh. You obviously spent a long time working on this. And I found that fu- very nice of him to say and very and sort of funny because I did write the <laughs> treatment, but when I actually sat down to write the script, it really just flowed. And sometimes you're lucky and that happens, but I wrote pretty much the script we shot of this movie in about six and a half days. <laughs> six and a half days? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it was one of my oh. records. <laughs> But really, I think one of the the more challenging things um, during production was that the crew was confused most of the time. (laughs) They didn't know what was happening. (laughs) Saying things to me like, didn't we already shoot this? (laughs) Didn't we shoot this already? No, we shot a different version of this. But but no, it's different. Okay, uh, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. You know, but they, they kept asking things like that and... And uh, wait, why are we doing this again? And things like that. So, you know, it's doing going back and and showing again a different version of the same scene. Boy, do they get confused. But luckily, I was also the script supervisor, and Rolf and I both understood what was going on. That's a good thing <laughs> so we were did. Doing. And then you, you could assure them that everything was going to work out well. As a producer, Esther, you must have been delighted that it that it took such a short time to film this this wonderful mo- little gem of a movie. Oh, ecstatic. From the time Stephen and I sat down and had lunch uh, sometime in mid-March. And when did we start shooting Wolf? The first week uh, of May? Uh, May. <laughs> Second week of May? Yeah. It yeah. Was, it was No, it was a, a seven weeks from the time we had coffee and lunch until we were production. Yeah, this one went so together really fast. <laughs> too. It was a great process, and and I would never have been able to do that and pull anything like this off with any other writer-director, which is why I was so excited when they said, we don't really have a script, <laughs> right back <laughs> to that, you know? Well, you yeah. knew how creative Rolf is and that he would he would be able to, to do it. Well, congratulations to uh, to both of you. But I, uh, I'm curious, uh, I always like to ask uh, filmmakers this in hindsight, would you have done anything different, Ralph? Um, I'm I'm pretty pleased with it. the the uh, the only The only thing I had because we had such a uh, a tight budget on on a film like this um, was that there was I was constantly worried that we were going to run out of money. <laughs> so uh, there was. Oh, yeah. uh, I've been a producer as well in the past, and I'm aware of you know when we're making the days or not making the days. So there was sort of a rush on that, but. This movie, in terms of as as a director, I think I got as as close 
to uh, the vision that I had originally planned than uh, almost anything I've done in over 10 years. <laughs> wow. Well, you've, you've done uh, so many um, films, and so that's, that's really saying a lot about uh, One in the Gun. And I was wondering, do you prefer writing or directing? You Well, and then you say you've even done producing, but um, mainly writing or directing, um, do you have right. for one over the other? Well, you you um, it's, you know it's been said you make a movie three times: uh, once when it's written, once when you shoot it, and once when you edit it. Mm-hmm. Um, the the writing phase is uh, is you know one person in a room writing, and and uh, there's a nice sense of accomplishment on that, and you you really it's it's one vision and it's in your head, and you get it on paper, and it's like okay, I've I've made the movie now for myself, and now. Can I get it out to the world? When you go into directing, um, things change. You have a lot more people involved in it, and that's where things can get a little bit messy. But uh, that's also where the magic happens, where suddenly the, the written word becomes images, and when you have, again, the right cast, you suddenly it comes to life, and, and magic happens sometimes when you're lucky that you never expected, and you just know that you know in, in the camera, and that's electrifying, so that's a great satisfaction. And then uh, in editing, you want to just make sure you don't screw the whole thing up <laughs> and try to keep it, you know, keep that, that vision strong. Um, so I, I, I really I enjoy writing, and uh, I've, I've always written since I was four years old. I've been writing before I could even write. I would translate stories to babysitters, and they would write them on like uh, craft paper. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then you know, directing is is you know putting that through and, and uh, keeping all the, the pieces together. But I enjoy that doing, too. That's a lot more stressful. You don't have as much fun as you'd like to have because you're always pressed for time and money and everything else that you're doing, uh, especially when you're doing independent cinema. But mm-hmm. um, but that's, don't, that's don't fun, too. Neglect, don't, don't negate the joyous revelations that happen during production. No, that's what I said. I said that's where the magic happens. On no, production. it's yeah. yes, more stressful than writing, for sure. But also, Rolf, you stay involved throughout the editing process. And I know a lot of directors really let somebody else do that, and then they come in and might, maybe they make some notes. But Rolf is really hands-on with editing, and he grew up with an editor father. Why don't you mention your dad? Brilliant yeah, well, my, genius. My father, uh, he, he was a post-production consultant on One of the Gun. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he was an editor for over 50 years, um, had his own company in New York City. And uh, so I grew up with an editing background. And, uh, and uh, he said, my films are very easy to edit if you edit them properly but if you don't know how to edit them properly it could be really difficult <laughs> so uh i I'm, I'm very involved in in the post and I, in the, this movie is particularly you can if you watch it in the way the flashbacks work into the story that's pretty much all done in the camera i mean it was designed to be cut one specific way if you don't cut it that way it's not going to work so uh so i was lucky that um i was able to stay involved and uh, work with uh, a good editor on this film dan capuzzi who who put the whole thing together with me to, uh, to to have the final result. Well, yep. that's good that you do uh, you stay right with the, with the process. And uh, you mentioned flashbacks, and I did want to say that I'm I'm not a big uh, fan of you know overuse of of flashbacks, but but the way they were used in one in the gun that was just that was just perfect, and uh, I I it didn't uh, interfere with my enjoyment of the of the film. So many times good. flashbacks are not used properly but they were definitely used properly in this in this film i was also impressed and i wanted to mention this early on with the background music now that's uh, in film noir that's really important that the that the music doesn't detract 
from yes. what's going on and rather enhances it. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, sure, who did that music and, oh, yeah. and why, um, where you no, got I, him? <laughs> yes. Uh, the composer yeah. on this film and almost every one of my feature films is a, is a, is a man named Christopher Farrell, and he's ah. wonderful. Um, Chris and I hit it off back in 1996. We've pretty much been working together almost exclusively since 96 together. Um, and he's a great composer. He uh, he loves Jerry Goldsmith, which is also a big uh, – I'm a big fan of, of Jerry's as well, still considered probably the greatest film composer there was. Oh, and, yeah. um, and and I And I like – I like I like scores for movies that have a melody and really have an emotional impact. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of sort of atmospheric sound music in the movies, mm-hmm. which is fine for certain movies, but they don't really have the, the the heart to it that I think the Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams and and you know traditional scores have. So I wanted to go for a kind of uh, a bit of an old-fashioned flavor. I want a little bit of a jazz influence there. I was uh, a big fan of um, uh, David Shire's uh, Taking a Pelham 1-2-3 score, and that was always in the back of our heads with the sort of the beat going on there, and you really hear it when uh, Mickey yeah. goes from the desert back to the motel at night where the music really kicks in. And I told Chris, just make it big. I want to I feel it. And he came up with some wonderful themes um, uh, for Mickey and, and Mickey's Lament and uh, that really – uh, connect the character and bring, you know, Steve's performance is great, and then it accents the performance. And, you know, when those things work hand in hand, the, the music and the movie and the sound design for your film, it's it's uh, creates a uh, wonderful experience. And and Chris also wrote the uh, the wonderful song that Esther sings in the film as Belle. Um, <laughs> that, uh, I was... I was I was thinking, and what am I going to add to this? And that was exactly where I was going with it. But... Um, yeah. I had the great pleasure of, after working with him as a composer on many of our features that Rolf and I have made together in the past, of collaborating with Chris on this song, and that oh. was just a very generous thing that he did. He had the bones of the song, he had the song, and then we doodled in his living room studio at his piano for a while and found exactly sort of where I could play with it, and, and, and he was very encouraging of, of my input, and it was a really amazing experience. Until it came time to record it, uh, because we didn't have any choice but to do it on our first day off after a week of shooting, and Rolf and I both had the flu by then. <laughs> oh, no. We were so sick, and he got to sleep, and I had to wake up and go sing. <laughs> I couldn't even speak. And uh, I actually have to tell a little tale on myself. I brought a bottle of vodka, a little, you know, cheap one from the liquor store, because I don't drink. I brought a little bottle of vodka with me just in case I really couldn't get my voice at all. I would sort of numb it. But for uh, medicinal purposes only, okay. <laughs> exactly. For medical purposes only. Um, for, for for artistic purposes only. But, but Chris Farrell stopped me from drinking it after a couple of times of of really screeching through the song. He said, no, no, you're almost there. You're almost warmed up. Don't touch the vodka. <laughs> and we finally well, now, got do it. You, do you remember, Do you can you sing that song a cappella a little bit for us today, or is that asking too much? Now is the time. The time has finally come. It's here. Now is the time. I've got my courage up, my dear. So listen up. When I tell you it's over, it started a little low. It's over, and it's so true. No, I'm not blue. I'm finally through with you. And that's the title of the song, Finally Through With You. 
Applause, applause, applause. I wish I had the sound effects. We were making yeah. applause here. Thank you very much. Oh, that, I love hear I love hearing that. And, and well, both of you, I mean, you're just uh, so delightful to talk with. And I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about any upcoming projects that you you would like to mention that you're that you're in, involved in. So, so why don't you go first, Ralph? Okay, well, uh, to, to continue with the music, I guess, um, the, the last film that actually Esther and I have done is a uh, full-out musical. <laughs> oh, I've, I've, I am the uh, world's most avid movie musical fan, so tell okay, me about Okay, um, this is a weird yeah. one. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is offbeat a little bit. I, I, I've, been, I've loved musicals as well. I mean, I, I love all genres, but my mother was a, uh, a singer and dancer on Broadway uh, <gasps> when I was really, before I was born, and she was in... Coco with Kathleen Hepburn and um, oh my God. You know, a few yeah, oh, yeah. a few famous shows. So luckily, I came from a you know creative background. My parents were supportive of me. But um, so I've always wanted to do a musical. The first musical I ever saw was The Wiz on Broadway, um, which I saw like twice. And then you know I love Into the Woods and Sondheim <laughs> and all that stuff. And uh, so I'm big, being a big fan of that. I've always wanted to do a musical, and I've worked in musical numbers in a lot of my movies. You know, Esther gets to mm-hmm. do this one in One of the Gun. But I have, even in my teen comedy, is pretty cool. There's a full-out dance number sequence, you know, like out of, you know, Ferris Bueller, and I love the Blues Brothers. And um, So in this, in this one, I, we, we took a different slant. We did a, uh, a fairy tale, a kind of warped fairy tale combining about 50 or 60 characters from nursery rhymes and, and fairy tales and stories. Um, all public domain characters that we could uh, put together into this into this movie that is called Emmanuel in Wonderland, um, oh. and it's uh, it's a sexy musical throwback to the late '70s when they did movies like Rocky Horror Picture Show and yeah. some other you know strange you know films. So it was fun doing like a, a Wonderland take. It, it's it's you know Alice crossed with Snow White and many many other stories, um, I but love there it. were twelve uh, twelve original songs and we had a choreographer and uh, singing and dancing and nudity. Um, so I've been, I've been pitching it as uh, Naked Glee meets Disney on Acid uh, for children oh, no. of all ages. <laughs> yeah, for children of all ages over eighteen. <laughs> over eighteen, I, I yes. guess. So, well, well, when does that? When is that? Available. Well, we've just we've just finished it. We're we're actually uh, just sending sending to film festivals and got uh, selected in early acceptance to the uh, Queens uh, World Film Festival in New York, where it's going to be premiering uh, in March of uh, 2012 in a couple months. Okay. Um, and uh, we're hearing back from a few other places. So uh, crossing our fingers, it's it's a cult movie. I mean, there's no question. One day this is going to be a cult film. It, like it took a couple of years for Rocky Horror to to build up its audience, and we'll see. You know how long it takes. The people who've seen this movie, the few people who've seen it, um, have have just loved it and think it's one of my best films. And I think it's definitely oh. my weirdest. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about it, Esther? I I love it. I think it's hysterically funny. It's got an amazing cast. We. We worked really hard on this film. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this was between it took having six, the, it took more than six weeks to do. Well, when you when you put it all together with all of the rehearsal that everybody had to do for this film, yeah, and how many musical numbers there are, and they're all you know the the actors would come in and they would shoot scenes and then they'd have a choreography rehearsal for another number, 
and things <laughs> like that. And it was it was pretty intense. It was it was crazy, but everybody had such a great time, and you can feel the joy when you watch the movie. It is just so much fun. Oh, I could hardly wait to see it. And we have uh, the listeners to uh, Movie Aggie Headquarters love Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, every year around Halloween, we do some kind of a, a treat <laughs> with uh, four listeners. By we we interviewed Barry Bostwick, and then we play replay that interview, and we go out with the time warp. We go out with uh, let's do the time warp again, which maybe that's what we'll go out with again today, since you mentioned <laughs> gives me an excuse to play the time. That would be great, and you know, yeah, that's great. It, it One is. of the things that we may end up doing with this film is is sort of uh, touring it around as a midnight movie, and it would be great yeah. to come down to Chicago with it. Yeah. Well, that would be because that's what uh, made uh, Rocky Horror uh, Picture Show such a hit was the midnight movies where everybody would dress up. Absolutely, and that's what you do. You dress up as your favorite fairy tale character and just have a great time. And uh, we have a a big cast, like over, I think fifty or sixty people in this movie, and uh, it was just, uh, just, just a crazy. I mean, like I said, nobody, nobody has made a film like this for at least thirty-five years. So yeah, wow. And if you name a fairy tale character, they're in the movie. Very much. (laughs) They're all (laughs) amazing. I love the idea of it, and and can hardly wait to can hardly wait to see it. Well, I also wanted to ask uh, both of you this because this is a question I like to ask all of our guests. What's the most important thing you want our listeners to know about you and your work? And Esther, I'll let you go on that one first. Wow. Um, I, I <laughs> wow. What's the most important thing about me? I I just uh-huh. love I I love making movies. Every aspect of it, from being in front of the camera, behind the camera, helping in, in any way, putting it together. And it, I think that's the reason that I've had the success that I have is because I get to do this. I never look at this as, like, my day job. I don't have a day job. I am the luckiest person in the world. <laughs> I can tell you feel that way. I really do. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm so I'm so glad that you're you're involved in in movies because it does sound like uh, it's your passion. And I sort of feel the same same way about it. I'm very very jealous at everything that you're doing. And how about you, Ralph? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, besides that, I'm single. I'm looking for the right woman. Uh. <laughs> All right, listeners, I guess I, heard it here. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I guess, um, yeah, I just, I, I love making movies, and uh, I, I just try to do put a spin on everything because I like to see something a little different and original. But I, you know, I, I know the history of movies, so I try to uh, put a, a, a quirkiness to everything, so it reinvents it a little bit rather than doing the same old thing. So I've used on all my movies. A Rolf Kinevsky flick, because uh, you know I, I've always felt when I first made my first film when I was 20 years old, there's nothing out there. Um, the whole like a, a film by or a motion picture, I felt was a little conceited and egotistical because so many people go to make a movie. So uh, I decided to to downplay it and use the word flick, which gives a little wink and a nod. And I think that sort of sets up my movies and puts you in the right mind frame that you can have. A, you can go and have a good time. You know, there 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 may be some surprises and things to think about, but it's it's basically entertainment. And uh, I really got into this to entertain people, and uh, you know, whether it be make them laugh or make them jump or make them think a little bit, or you know, 
um, that's that's always been my goal, and uh, you know, it's it's always it's a tricky business, you know, but um, I, I'm pleased that I've been able to keep my vision on on almost everything I've done, and uh, and it is honest to uh, to what it was trying to be. Well, I like that answer, and um, based on what I've seen with one in the gun and talking with you, I know that you're you're living up to that. But I see our time is almost up. I can't believe it went by so. Fast. I I just have have had the best time talking with with both of you. I I hope that that you'll come back uh, again and and visit us uh, in the future when there's something else that you uh, about movies that you'd like to talk about. Will Will you do that, both of you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime you want to have us back. Oh, yep. great! I'll look I'll look forward to it. But. This is Betty Jo Tucker giving a big, big shout-out to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support and for featuring this episode as one of its today's picks. And special thanks to Nikki Starr and Daniel Dyer for their help, as well as to our chatters and other listeners. I hope everyone enjoyed the show as much as I did. Please come back next time for an unusual episode titled Food, Camera, Action. We'll be talking with Jane Bernard, author of Am I Really Hungry? about films with the most interesting food and eating sequences. It should be another fun show. In the meantime, don't you forget to check out our film reviews at realtalkreviews.com. That's R-E-E-L, realtalkreviews.com. You'll find my review of One in the Gun on that site. That's all for now. So, by popular demand from Esther and Rolf, let's go out doing, you guessed it, the time warp again. (laughs) Hey. I can get it going. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.